Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. And welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Ergonomic and modern. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. I'm ready. Are you? And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! 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 Before we dive into the episode, we just wanted to give you your usual gentle prod in the direction of our other sources of content. We've just set up an official Instagram channel for the podcast, so please do check that out. It's at O3C Podcast. We'll be posting loads of images and videos on there, as well as continuing to do so on our YouTube channel, which you can also subscribe to, which we would massively appreciate. I recently streamed myself playing through Rayman on the Saturn and that video content will be appearing on our YouTube channel and our IGTV channel soon, so do look out for that. Also, please do check out our Patreon page if you fancy supporting the podcast a little bit more. For a few pence a month, you can teach a man to fish and get some excellent perks from us. <laughs> www.patreon.com slash our three cents. Do please give it a look. So, this week we have our 25th favourite video games of all time. We're into the last quarter. If this was a 400 metre race, we'd have 100 metres to go. And that's when you really pull your bloody legs out, innit? <laughs> if this was a relay race, you'd start sort of cantering with your hand behind you, waiting for the guy to give you your tube. Oh yeah, and then some. Yeah. Before we dive into what we've been playing this week, though, it's time to return to the quiz. And Minty is... Roaring a comeback. He's two points behind Chris. Oh dear. It's the narrowest it's been for a little while. Like I said, I'm starting my canter. You've got your hand out ready for this quizzical tube. (laughs) In the original Super Mario Kart for the SNES, the hardest difficulty had to be unlocked by completing all four racing series. What was the difficulty called? A. 150cc. A. That is correct. Uh, <laughs> it's been the, it's been the same in every game, isn't it? It's n- it's never changed from that. I haven't played the original Super Mario Kart, so I wouldn't have known that. But uh, there mm. we go, there we go. The point goes to Chris, and it is now thirty nine to thirty six. But don't worry, Minty, there is still plenty of time. I'm not worried. No, you don't sound it. No. <laughs> So, what have we been playing this week? Shall I, shall I tell you what I've been playing this week? Go on then. So, I, for a start, finished Owlboy, which was uh, lovely. Good, Really, bad. really beautiful game. Good. Very good game. I could, I think I could have happily played it for a bit longer as well, actually. Uh, I mean, the thing that really impressed me is the lore of the game. <laughs> like, for a game that is only a few hours long, it's got just an incredibly well-realized world and a story and, like, backstory. And the lore really is... I mean, it's quite tantalising. Like, I wouldn't be surprised to see another game in the series appear at some point. Like, possibly, given the, the circumstances of the story, possibly a prequel set, like, a thousand years before this one. Because, like, the director of the game, he, apparently it took about ten years to finish it. I mean, he's clearly got, like, a huge idea in his head for this world. And, and that's great. I mean, something I said last week is that I have been spoiled a bit by Ori and the Blind Forest, so I didn't quite have that same urge to jump straight back in and go through and 100% it or play through it again, but it's still really, really good and well worth checking out. Although having said that, reading reviews of the game once I finished it praised the soundtrack massively and I played through the entire game on mute. So I do feel like I missed out on on something even more wonderful for the game. So I I might play through it again just just to experience the music. (laughs) I also had another fantastic session on Sea of Thieves in the week. Again, just had so much fun. There was only three of us on the the middle-sized ship this time, which was, I mean, it was a lot easier to handle than the galleon we took out last week. And we still made loads of cash, bought some incredibly opulent outfits and accessories. And yeah, we lined up to uh, to set sail again in the week, which I, I just can't wait. It's just it's just great. Really, really good. Other than that, I haven't played haven't played much else. It's been quite a busy week, although I did start playing The Last of Us Part 2. I'm only a couple of hours in and, you know, it's, it's been really, really cool to see how the story's unfolding. Got a few quibbles with it, mostly along the lines of the quibbles I had with the first game, but I'm going to wait and see how it how it unfolds, you know, a bit more, and then I'll, I'll share my full opinions on that. So maybe maybe next week I'll, I'll have something something a bit more to say. 
But the, I mean, the biggest news from my week is that I got myself an Oculus Quest. Oh, so I've been playing boy. a good amount of VR content, uh, basically just Tetris Effect and Thumper. The two best games. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did have a brief spell uh, playing Super Hot VR and punched my wall. So. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so I've gone back to playing sit-down games. <laughs> but, um, I, I'm gonna, at some point during the week, I'm going to try and set it up with my computer because you can tether it to your computer to run steam and uh, and then i'm going to give half-life alex a whirl but i mean it's really a, an amazing piece of kit like hands down the best vr experience i've had i mean just just not having wires having that freedom it's uh yeah it's it's quite something i i, I mean you know it's easy to say oh i recommend it but it given obviously the, the price cost is quite uh it is quite hefty but also if you are going to invest in a VR experience, I would I would recommend going this route. How about you guys? Minty, what have you played this week? Not a huge amount, but the one game that I have played and completed, I'm pleased <laughs> to say, the first game in the series that I have completed, Doom 64. Hey, Ooh, well, well done. done. Well done, you. Thank you. Yes. So I, I, I beat the final boss and I went back and unlocked the first sort of super secret level, which then unlocked the cheats which you can then use to warp to the fun levels, which are basically just like <laughs> gauntlets with all the toughest enemies in the game. So I'm working my way through those, which is which is nice. all good fun. And then I'll move on to the lost levels, which are all the ones that came out with Ooh. the re-release. That you play as Luigi in. Yes, yes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Lovely. How about you, Chris? What have you played this week? Uh, I've played more weird PC stuff. Of course you bloody have. I've, this week I've got a taste for, for souping up some old games using player hacks and mods and things like that. Lovely. So I've, I've had a blast of both GTA 3 ah. and looking amazing in 2020. Uh, and the, the best one is Unreal Tournament. Oh, yeah. Which, which adding like some bug fixes and, and a better resolution and some new textures and everything else, it, it plays as good as it did in 1999 when it came out, but it looks like yeah. a, a current-gen game. Amazing. <laughs> like, it, it really does scale up well, and it's it's still super quick. It's still, like, high skill to the point that I'm not very good at it at all. <laughs> but, you know, the, the last time I played this game properly was probably on, like, a 640 by 480 monitor. <laughs> yeah. So that alone, like, just the resolution of having this at full HD is, is unbelievable. That's fantastic. And it, it's great. Really, really good fun. Like, what I'm enjoying in a way about sort of playing games like this is there is a bit of work required to set things up sometimes mm -hmm. but i get i get a lot of fun out of that that's good <laughs> i quite enjoy sort of like the troubleshooting that comes with getting things to work properly yeah and and as much as that's frustrating sometimes because a console is just put it in and, and away you go i i quite enjoy that like 10 minutes of optimization it takes to get things going properly so it hasn't actually been a negative yet and i, and I have really enjoyed games like that the other thing I've played, which sort of connects to a conversation me and you, Jonathan, vaguely were involved in on, on Twitter the other night, is um, I've played the first episode of Telltale's now 10-year-old Jurassic Park game. Oh, wow. I, I, see, I, I saw that you were doing that on, yeah. on Twitter, but I, I didn't even know that existed. I mean, it's a really interesting release for the time it came out and, and for what it means for like Telltale as a developer from what they did before and afterwards. And I mean... Jurassic Park as a franchise, for not everyone's going to agree with me on these things, especially not you, I don't think, Jonathan, but mm. I, I think the original Jurassic Park is, is one of my top 10 favourite films. Yeah, I, I, would, I would probably share that. I think The Lost World is perfectly serviceable, but I never have the urge to watch it at all. Jurassic Park 3, because of the, the CG at the time, which oh looked my God, awful. It's so bad. I, I can't watch. I hated it the time yeah. when I did, and I haven't gone back. Yeah. And and the recent two films, the Jurassic World films, I enjoyed Jurassic World a lot more than I thought I would because I think it was mm. it was quite good at using the sort of meta plot of almost being about the franchise, trying to like make itself bigger and yeah. better. And it was very self-aware, and I thought that was good. It knew what it was doing in, yes. in terms of pulling yeah. the nostalgia strings and everything as well. And uh it's sort of like like the Force Awakens did. It's like yeah. I know what you're doing. It's working, but uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but then Fallen Kingdom that I watched quite recently, I didn't see it in the cinema. I only saw it a few weeks back. Mm. I, I really didn't enjoy, it. and I, and I think for me it's because as this new trilogy has moved on, the dinosaurs and especially like the the T Rex is now its own like buddy character. Yeah. And and the original film, all of the dinosaurs were like these unknowable, scary things. Yeah. Every every human inter interaction with them was like fearful. It didn't matter if they were just like a, a nice herbivore. It was still this is yeah. so so outside of my understanding. 
It's it's yeah. scary and big and massive. And and by the time this one has rolled around, Fallen Kingdom is like a haunted house movie for most of it. Yeah, I, see, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but that that for me was very very strange. And what what I'm sort of rambling on on about is because I think the the Telltale game. It's not the best game, but I think the plot I am more connected to than either of the modern films because it's set at the same time as the original film was going on, like that same night of the storm. Yeah. And and basically you, you play as like a mixture of characters. One of them is a mercenary that's been sent in to try and collect the dinosaur embryos that Nedry's meant to take to the docks in, mm-hmm. in case he fails. So she has to go and yeah. attempt to find them. And you also play as a vet and his daughter who just works on the island and she's come to visit oh, like nice. during sort of the, the opening initial weekend. Yeah. And it's, it's really fun. You know, it reviewed quite poorly at the time because it is just quick time events and story, essentially. There's not really like a puzzle game in it. And Telltale at the time were famous for making a new Monkey Island and a new Sam and Max. And they were like the modern LucasArts doing point and click games. Whereas this was the turning point where they started to take on more cinematic licenses and it was less than about the puzzles and more about kind of like the choices and the experience and everything else. And because mm-hmm. I'm aware of that and I know where this fits in with their kind of canon of work, it's it's good fun uh, and it tells a decent story. And it's quite interesting to to play it with the hindsight of knowing that they would go on and do 50 seasons of The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones. and <laughs> Back to the Future. Yeah, Back to the Future, Guardians of the Galaxy. They, they did all these different franchises and it, it is good fun. And, and like I say, I, I think it's... Um, Certainly in the first episode, it's better plotting than Fallen Kingdom (laughs) and Jurassic World. So, you know, it's decent. Fair enough. I'm going to address one point, (laughs) uh, which is your criticism of the T-Rex. And I understand understand what you're saying about that. Yeah. But also, the T-Rex in Jurassic World is is the same T-Rex from Jurassic Park. So it is a, you know, at least a 20, 30 year old animal. And yeah. I think that one of the things that you had, you can take into consideration, you don't have to, I mean, it's just the way I saw, <laughs> it's just the way, just the way I perceive it is that, that is that the T-Rex will have had an ongoing evolving relationship with humans yeah, okay. uh, over that time, because it would have seen the best of humans and the worst of humans. And, you know, I mean, famously like T-Rex is meant to have tiny brains. So it matters <laughs> diddly squat. But then also they yeah. probably had feathers. So as someone who I, you know, apart from Jurassic Park three, I absolutely love all of the films. Don't don't get me wrong. The first film is leagues above the yeah, others. Yeah, you know that's that's for sure. But yeah, that certainly whets my appetite to potentially check that out because um, Jurassic Park games are have been a mixed bag. Yeah, a mixed bag. Yeah, and I haven't played I haven't played the latest one, the um, like the the sort of park management one. But I think from what I've read, it's Dinosaur attacks and dinosaur outbreaks and chaos management happen in the game no matter how well you do things. So it can feel like it's really unfair. Yeah. It's still on my Steam wish list. I'll buy it. Possibly if it goes like 90% off, I'll, I'll buy it for <laughs> less than a tenner. <laughs> well, there we go. Shall we move on to the rankings? Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Starting this week, we have my computer game, my 25th favourite video game of all time. It's better than Ooh. 75 other games. Yeah, probably. My game this week is another one of those games that I think a lot of people will associate with me. <laughs> and I'll be the first to admit that this game was an absolute obsession of mine. It's still to this day the only game and a couple of others in the series that I've actively competed in online and also become rather good at to the point where I was 10th best player in the world at Super Whee! Monkey Ball. Oh, of course, yes. Rolling away. <laughs> so for people who don't know what Super Monkey Ball is, it's a game by Sega that was originally released on the GameCube and later ported to the PlayStation 2. And it's had lots of sequels and spin-offs on, on multiple consoles since. I'll, I'll, I'll talk a bit about my thoughts on the evolution of the series a bit later on, but for now, I'm just going to focus on the original and, in my opinion, definitely the best Super Monkey Ball game. It was one of the first games I got on my GameCube alongside Rogue Leader and Luigi's Mansion and was one of the games that I'd seen played as well that made me like lust after the console originally. It was also, I think, the first Sega game that I had on a Nintendo system, which was uh, sort of a, a kind of a real sort of landmark event when Sega turned from being hardware developers into purely software. And one of the nice things about the game is it was recognisably a Sega game 
And I think that's mainly because of the art style, because you look at a stage on Super Monkey Ball and it's got that Green Hill Zone-esque checkerboard effect on the floor of the stages. And, and you know, it, you know, it evokes memories of, of, of uh, Sonic. And so it was nice to sort of have that familiar edge to it. Now, the way the game works is you are a monkey in a ball and you need to navigate your monkey across increasingly trickier stages to get through a goal without falling off the sides of the stage. It's a wonderfully simple setup and it allows for a huge amount of variety and creativity in stage design. There's three main difficulty levels in the game. You've got 10 beginner levels and if you clear those without losing a life, then you unlock three beginner extra levels. Then there's... 30 intermediate levels with five extra ones on the end if you can beat all of those 30 without losing a continue and then there's 50 expert levels with 10 expert extra levels awaiting you if you can clear all 50 without losing a continue and if you can clear all 50 expert levels and the 10 expert extra levels without losing a continue then you unlock 10 master levels which are just beyond anything and everything you've seen before and, and you really do get the full range of difficulty on these levels. Like the beginner levels, you've got basically rails up on the sides of the stages and, you know, a couple of holes in the floor. Bowling buddies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, essentially. <laughs> and, you know, it really does help sort of ease you into the game. And then, you know, it will introduce some, some moving platforms towards the end to make it a bit, bit more precarious. Then the advanced stages introduce more elements like, you know, you've got rotating and flipping platforms, bumpers that will send you flying but in terms of gimmicks, like there really aren't any and the increasing difficulty is all down to the brilliance of the stage designs. And something that's really nice is, is they, they have this knack of revising certain levels from earlier difficulty brackets into the later ones. So you'll get like a new variation of an old level. There's one in particular, which I think is, is the 10th level in Beginner. It's the last one. And you basically start on a little square. There's a narrow ramp leading up to another platform. You go across a little bridge, and then you come back down a little set of stairs and then wind in an S shape to the goal. Then the revision of this in the advanced levels makes it, the ramp steeper and, the, uh, and, and it narrower and the steps are a lot narrower and the curving part at the end is a lot longer and narrower. And it's a, you know, it's a fair bit harder. But the expert variation of this level was one of the most hated levels I had. It was an infamous stumbling block when trying to get through expert mode without dying. And it was only seven levels in. It was the seventh level on expert. So you you just, you, your soul would be shattered so quickly, so often. It was it was so hard. Like it was so narrow. And the, the final curved section was, it was just, oh, it was... It felt almost impossible. Like it was so, it's so tricky to get around it. Like you'd had to, you'd had to take it so slowly whilst this timer was ticking down and your thumbs would be getting sweatier and sweatier. It was, it was so tense. There actually is then a master version of this level in master mode, which is just purely insane. Like in the monkey ball community, we managed to find some like tips and tricks to help you navigate it with some consistency, but like trying to just beat the level normally was it was so tough it was yeah it was i mean all the levels in master mode were incredibly tough so the way it used to work with competing online with this game because because this was like long before like online scoreboards were a thing and i mean there, and there, so there was nothing official set up there was a bespoke system that was made by by a guy from norway who has become quite a good friend over the years a guy called frodo Klau, and i managed to meet up with him once when i was over visiting my uh my Danish aunt who lived in Oslo and that was, that was really really nice uh, so he made this system that basically relied on the players manually keeping track of our, our highest scores on each of the levels and then we would upload them in a form and this system would decode them and figure out your overall ranking and this is where the game moved from being just a game I enjoyed and, and a hobby to an outright obsession because me and my friend Alec Howard got so fiercely competitive that it drove us both to the, the, the very heights of this leaderboard over the course of I mean, I think it was probably the best part of two years I played it for. Although we did have one brief respite from it when we were doing our A-levels and we decided that we needed to agree with each other that we wouldn't play <laughs> Monkey Ball during our exams because, like, it was just too too much. And ridiculously, during that time, we both sort of, uh, we got re-addicted to playing Tetris DX on our Game Boy Colours. And then we got addicted to that instead um, before, I mean, you know, getting through the A-levels and returning to Monkey Ball. <laughs> but, you know, we would refine our techniques on each level again and again and again to try and push our scores up just a little bit more and a little bit more. 
and the score on the individual levels was dictated by by two things, how quickly you completed the level and, and how many bananas you collected en route to the goal. Because like collecting a single banana would be like, I think it was like 100 points. A bunch of bananas would be 1,000 points and each frame of time would equate to about like one or two points. Unfortunately, there was a great archive of videos on the website as well, showing us how the world records were achieved. So we could try and recreate those as best as possible. And it was a really, really good community, really sort of helped each other learn how to how to play the game better and taught us all these little tips and tricks that would help sort of push our scores up and up. And it was it was fantastic. I managed to equal several world records and also establish a couple as well, which was I was, you know, pretty proud of, even if it was was just by getting one frame more than the the current world records, you know, you would be outright the world record holder. And that was lovely. But it's this obsession with the game that led to the game placing here on my list. I think it's safe to say that, I I mean, I wouldn't have become as big a fan of the game if I wasn't competing in it, because competing in it unearthed a whole other side of the game to be enjoyed and really showcased its versatility that, that would definitely pass over any casual player. But then also it was this obsession that also led to a like a general sense of anxiety that I associate with the game now as well <laughs> because the pressure I put on myself uh, and the pressure you know I felt from from trying to beat Alec and trying to sort of climb higher and higher up the the leaderboards was you know it, it's safe to say I mean it definitely drove you know a good chunk of my life in in what was certainly an unhealthy way. <laughs> so, so whilst I absolutely adore the game, and you know I've put more hours into it than than possibly any other game, I do have a bit of a love hate relationship with it these days. I think it says a lot about the game that when I see the abbreviation SMB, my first thought is not Super Mario Brothers but Super <laughs> Monkey Ball. Like that's that's how much it penetrated my brain. <laughs> I mean, nevertheless, I'm still incredibly proud of my achievements in the game, and I still have some of my more impressive replays saved on a GameCube memory card somewhere, which sees me, like, bouncing across whole levels on top of bumpers and getting incredibly precise, like, kicks and flips off rogue pixels to fly through the sky to snag a bunch of bananas as I, I sail through the goal tape at, like, a thousand miles per hour. And it was, you know, it was great fun. It's the sort of game where the sort of technology that exists today, like Twitch and everything, existed back then. I, you know, I happily would have had a, another outlet for it. But, you know, I, I had the time then. I had nothing to do apart from school back in those days. And it's what I chose to invest my time in. And it's, it's not something that I'd be able to do. I'd be able to do now, I think, with any game. One side of the game that I haven't mentioned today, but our Patreon listeners will have heard me dissect this element in one of our Patreon exclusive bonus episodes, are the mini games, because there were some really fun mini games included in the game that would see your monkey in a ball be transformed into being used as a bowling ball or a golf ball or a billiard ball. There was Monkey Target, where you would be launched into the sea, open the baller's wings, and try and glide to targets scattered throughout the water. There was Monkey Fight that saw you sport a retractable fist to try and punch your opponents off the playing field. And Monkey Race, which was sort of like a, almost like a cart-like experience as you race around these big racetrack stages and get weapons and blah 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 And your scores on all of these would also count towards your overall ranking in this online leaderboard. So I, I played some of these almost as much as I played some of the levels with Monkey Target being an especially potent memory. And I mean, you can hear my full thoughts on that if you want to check out our mini game special episode, if you subscribe to the Patreon page for this podcast. Little plug there. <laughs> now I mentioned that this game has spawned several sequels and spin-offs, but for me, none of them have captured what made this game so special. Instead, Sega focused in on elements that were more overtly, in inverted commas, fun, rather than consider (laughs) what us true obsessives want in the game, which is entirely understandable, given how in the minority our serious monkey ballers are. So so the second monkey ball game, which I had, I mean, it, it started exhibiting more and more gimmicky stages with some crazy mechanics that could be, I mean, they were wildly unpredictable. So it meant it was a lot trickier to hone a, a definite method for beating them to get the higher scores. And the levels were also a lot bigger with more obstacles to overcome. So like the speed at which I would approach levels in Monkey Ball 1 and, and the speed at which you, you, would, you would try and approach fail restart try again fail restart try again try again try again try again that speed of play wasn't there so it didn't have that that same like immediacy and it was also a lot easier to unlock the harder levels in in the game which which is fair enough because like i genuinely reckon only about one percent 
of the players of the first game managed to unlock master mode because it was so insanely hard to do. I mean, I, you know, I was playing it, like I said, obsessively and it took me so long to actually unlock master mode. In- incredibly difficult to do. And there was actually in the, in the community, we did have another goal uh, that was past that, which was at the end of pl- a playthrough, at the end of a session, the game would calculate your play points, which would, give you a score for your overall performance of that playing session. And you would get points for the amount of levels you beat because there were also warp points, secret warp points you could find that would take you to levels further on and skip out some levels. You lost points if you died or if you used continues. And if you managed to complete all 50 expert levels, all 10 expert extra levels, and then all 10 master levels, and without losing a single life you would get a perfect 9,999 play score. So that became like the pinnacle of, of any monkey ballers achievement. I, I never did it. I, in fact, I never even made it through to the end of master mode without losing a continue. And even, yeah, which would get you a score of about 9,000 plus. I never, I never managed to do that. It was, it was so, so hard. One of the other reasons that I didn't enjoy Monkey Ball 2 as much is that because of the PAL NTSC difference, the game's scoring system worked differently. So you couldn't compete against people on an international level because like the, the frame rates were, were different. I, I don't quite understand how that worked with like 50 hertz, 60 hertz, etc. But it basically meant that the game generated different scores. Uh, and in Monkey Ball 1, you could force the game into 60 hertz mode. Uh, so that it would sort of play it the same as as uh, people playing it elsewhere in the world. The upside of this is it meant that I was number one in the UK <laughs> at Super Monkey Ball 2. So, uh, so that was good. I also had a stint at number one in the world for Super Monkey Ball Junior on the Game Boy Advance. It's a good game. Which was a really... It was, well, it, it was okay. It was, I mean, incredibly ambitious because it was a full 3D Monkey Ball game. But to be fair, it performed like an absolute <laughs> sodden arsehole running at about... 10 frames per second with the draw distance of a gooch resulting in an almost unplayable experience. It's a good game. <laughs> I, did, I did persist with it uh, to at least get a score for each level, which was uh, turned out that was enough to put me at the top of that leaderboard without too much effort. Now, I spoke recently when Banana Blitz HD came out on the Switch that I had issues with that. Ugh. The fact that the levels were, again, too gimmicky. The fact that you had a jump button. I mean, which could, I mean, could have been a fun evolution of the formula, but the level designs then didn't make the most of that. <laughs> and the boss levels were a genuine war crime. Ugh. It was a really hateful game. <laughs> it is it, uh, uh, awful. Awful. I did have Monkey Ball Touch and Roll on the DS, which was actually quite fun, although I didn't like the touch controls because it was well, it was a touchscreen control and we've spoken about the difficulty we have with like Mario 64 DS and Metro Prime Hunters. And, and because the DS didn't have an analog stick, it, it meant that controlling that just with the D-pad was then really frustrating as well. But it was still it was still quite good fun. Monkey Ball on the 3DS though, I actually thought it was really, really good because you could control it with an analog stick. It had a good stereoscopic 3D effects. And although the setup of the game was still quite watered down and the levels were still a bit too gimmicky, I, I still had a really good time playing that. I mean, I would absolutely love it if they revisited the series and focused more on the classic monkey ball experience. Something that, I mean, if it included online leaderboards, then I could see myself taking that quite seriously again. <laughs> and there were rumblings like not too long ago because... The guy who does the announcements in the game said he'd recorded some new dialogue for a Monkey Ball game. So there could be something on the horizon. I, I, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a new one or a remaster or what. I mean, I'd happily settle for, you know, an HD remake of the first two. Or, or actually, because they were packaged as Super Monkey Ball DX on the PS2, which combined the first two games together and sort of bundled it all together in one game. So like, you know, a nice modern remake of that. That would be great. And, I mean, it would help cleanse the palate after the enormous bite of literal shit that was <laughs> Banana Blitz HD. But for now, the original and best Super Monkey Ball game is my 25th favourite video game of all time. As you said, it is a Jonathan Dunn game for me. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've played a very small amount of Monkey Ball over the years. I probably played Monkey Ball Junior more than any of the others when I had a Game Boy Advance. Oh, fair play. But what I think is interesting is the way you played that game, the way you played a lot of games back then when we were younger, mm. if, like you say, if something like Twitch and, and a proper like global speedrunning community had existed 
that time, mm. you absolutely would have been at GDQ yeah. most years <laughs> playing some of these games. I, I don't doubt it for a moment Aww. because out of out of anyone that I've ever sort of played games with or, or spoken to about video games, I think you you have the highest skill level because of the way that you attacked games with <laughs> such ferocity when you were really into something. <laughs> and, and that's something I've, yeah. I've never had. Like, even the games I love the most, I, I don't commit enough time to. Yeah. And I know, like, when you've spoken about games, Minty, as well, you, you often joke that you are bad at, at certain games as well. And I think we're both in a very similar... We play games in a similar way sometimes. I think that we, we know we're not the best at certain genres, but it's like, but we enjoy taking part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question about Super Monkey Ball. Please go for it. Do you control the monkey or like the world? So this was one of the things that I never really understood because technically you control the world. You tilt the world like you were playing like an old marble in a box game. Ah, I see. And, and some people said, oh, if, once you imagine that you're controlling it like that, then that makes it a lot easier. For me, it was the other way around. And I, I always feel like I have direct control over the ball itself. And I, I can't imagine that you control the world. It's, it's weird. <laughs> it's, it's, po- it's possibly the reason why, like, any of the games with motion controls, like, on the Switch, and, I mean, the 3DS one had motion controls as well. It's That just doesn't make sense to me. It feels, it's like, well, it's so precarious. Of course you're going to fly off the end of the stage when you're trying to balance a monkey on a ball that, you know, isn't really there. <laughs> I think it doesn't, It you know, whatever works better for you is, is the way to is the way to, to approach it. But for me, it's always, it, it's always felt, like I said, like I have direct control over over the ball rather than rather than the world Hmm. thanks for asking no worries (laughs) moving on we have chris's game hello chris can you please tell us about your 25th favorite video game of all time yes i can i've been quite sparing with my inclusion of of mobile games on this list you have and it is because for the most part I, i just don't really play them that much and, and whenever I get a new phone, I, there's always like a few days where I excitedly install things I think are going to be good showcases for my new handset. <laughs> and then within a week, I've deleted everything bar Desert Golfing, Super Hexagon and today's game. <laughs> it's like the, the Holy Trinity. Yeah, we've all played Infinity Blade for a bit. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Mobile games are weird. And I mean... Long gone are the days when, you know, I had my Nokia 3310, my first phone, and and the three games on that felt expensive enough that I could set aside an evening to play them. Like, that was what I was doing that night. Yeah. To, to play a bit of Snake, play a bit of Space Impact, play a bit of Space Bang Impact, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some game where you, you drop little, like, beans in pots or something. But, you know, these days I have consoles, I've got dedicated handhelds, I've, I've got a computer, I've got a tablet, I can play games on so many different formats that if I want to spend time with something, it's it's probably not going to be on my phone. And and it means that the way I approach mobile games has, has just changed over the years, that for me to enjoy a mobile game, it has to acknowledge that it's got inherent limitations, so that so the game needs to acknowledge that... I'm most likely going to play it for five minutes whilst I make a cup of tea or, or while uh, I, I'm about to go to sleep just for a couple minutes before I go to bed or while I'm waiting for public transport or something like that. And and for better or worse, mobile games are at their best for me when they can kind of know that they're not going to have my full attention. Like They're, they're more like a snack that it's like mm. a big gulp and then they're gone <laughs> until the next time you go, oh, fancy some tangy toms or oh, I'm going to go for a fun-sized Mars bar. <laughs> It's like they're, they're that kind of experience. It's something that you're going to have and then you're going to put away and it might come out later the same day or it might not come out for a week and it, it doesn't really matter. And and for me, because of that, I think New Star Soccer is the perfect mobile game. <gasps> oh. oh, great game. Yes, like yes. Put, pulling my little mobile game checklist out. Can it be played with a simple one-finger control scheme? Yep, check that. Uh, is it up and running within seconds? Yep, check that. Is it immediate, but also has like enough depth to, to keep you engaged if you want to play for a little bit longer? Yep, check that. Does it have an incredibly low financial barrier to entry? Yep, check there as well. But most importantly, I think New Star Soccer is a uniquely mobile experience that knows what it is and, and is built completely to the strengths of that platform. For for anyone in the world that hasn't played it, it's, it's massively popular. I'm sure the majority of people would have at least heard of it. You take control of a single football player, and you manage their in-game performances directly. 
So you get kind of like direct control over when the ball drops to them to either dribble forwards or, or chucking a pass or thumping a goal. Then during downtime in a game, you manage sort of team tactics very loosely, balancing energy levels against aggressiveness for your team to try and make more chances or defend. And then outside of match day, you, you manage the player's happiness and energy through little simple mini games or, or simple life choices. And it's all just really, really simple. It's, it's easy to pick up, it's easy to understand, but there's actually quite a lot to it. And yet, despite how simple it is, I've, I've taken a single player through almost 20 seasons worth of games before. <laughs> I, I've taken them through promotions and unlikely cup victories when they're in the lower leagues. I've taken them through gambling addiction. I've taken them through 100 goal seasons. I've taken them through international misery. <laughs> I've, I've taken them through heated contract negotiations, through twilight years at lower league clubs, a burgeoning property portfolio, as well as destructive celebrity relationships. <laughs> like it's, it's all in this one little stupid game that you can play for five minutes or five hours. And all of it is so intuitive. Like it, it's got like a softly ramping difficulty that seems to adjust almost perfectly to your skill level as you get better at the game. My, my brother Tom, I've mentioned before, is a big football fan. He almost exclusively only plays football games. And, and when I said I was going to talk about this game, he said it's the best football game ever made. And that's incredibly high praise from someone who's, yeah. that is, that's their wheelhouse. Yeah, he's played all the football games. <laughs> yes, he has. In, in Tom's delightful words when I spoke to him, he said, the lifestyle features dick all over FIFA's be a pro stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps even higher praise, he said... Um, it's remarkable that after all this time, New Star Soccer's formula stands alone and that there's no other football game with this setup. Like, it just feels totally its own thing. And, and I think he's completely right. I, I think there's a lot of games that take elements from this kind of format and there's a lot of games like FIFA that have this kind of, like, player management type career mode, but not in the same kind of, like, immediate way that New Star Soccer does. I mean... This is a game as well that is made by one man. That's insane. <laughs> like, I'm always blown away. Like, New Star Soccer for years has been made by one guy called Simon Reed, and, and he basically spent years building the New Star experience through PC games that were kind of like arcade football games, much like Sensible Soccer, something like that. Over time, these games included a bit more of the life sim element that, that would be in the mobile game, but I don't think all his ideas really coalesced properly until this version, like when it appeared on phones for the first time. And and it's because suddenly all the little things that, that are controlled in this, like the length of a match, meaning that you can blast through like a quarter of a season on a 15-minute bus journey. <laughs> yeah. the, the frequency of like your direct intervention, which means in a game you, you never switch off and get bored because anytime you sort of like your eyes start to wander, you're back in play again, trying to like score across or you're, you're trying to pass to another player or dribble around some defenders. And as well, you there's like a great sort of sense of risk and reward throughout the whole game about trying to keep your player fit but happy, energised but but well-liked by his kind of like wider relationships. And there's all these kind of like little micro decisions as well that make you feel very, very part of the game. So thinking, okay, I've, I've got a chance here. Do I do I take a shot and, and try and get like a ludicrous bend into the top corner? Or do I try and play a safer pass and, and hope another player is going to connect with the header? It's all these little bits and pieces that you start doing very instinctively, but it keeps you on your toes at all time. There's, there's always these like little bits to, to be considering. When I first played New Star Soccer, I, I knew that Tom would love it, even though he'd, he'd sort of grown up just playing football manager, Pro Evolution Soccer and FIFA. I, I knew this was something for him. But at the time, I think it cost a quid on the App Store. And he was just, he wasn't used to the idea of digital ownership. Like it was something we're all very kind of au fait with today. But back then, like 10 years ago almost, it, it was something that was quite different. To try and entice him in for, for a birthday or it might have been a Christmas or Quinceanera or Yom Kippur or whatever. I, I gave Tom a card and, and sellotaped a pound inside of it and just said, <laughs> that, that's for New Star Soccer. Can you just go nice. and buy it? Because it's something you're going to enjoy. <laughs> And and again, talking to him about it recently, he <laughs> happily informed me that he once spent an entire 10-hour transatlantic flight to Thailand exclusively playing this game. Amazing. <laughs> and and I mean, it just goes to show how, how much you can be drawn in by something that is on the surface very, very simple, but, you know, has got a surprising amount of stuff to do and, and, and depth and things to unlock and things to aim for. 
like he he very proudly said his record for a single season was over 300 goals scored and and that he managed to keep one player active until he was in something like his 50s brilliant <laughs> still still like banging in a hat trick every game still still chugging energy drinks like they're going out of fashion <laughs> yeah I mean, New Star Soccer, you can still get on every phone. It's free to play these days. And yet it's still a remarkably rewarding and generous game. Like generally, I always feel a little bit odd when games kind of go from being a premium experience to, yeah. to free to play. Because often it means the economy is is broken just enough that it wants you to spend more money. And and maybe it's because I've already played a lot of this game. So I didn't notice kind of the, the added difficulty that might add because I was slightly better at it. But it still feels like you know, there's options to, to boost your player's energy or to buy better football boots or whatever that you can spend in-game currency on if, if you pay for it. But I think the economy is is kind of stable enough that you don't need to, that you can ignore them if, if you're just pretty okay at the game and want to just forge your own way. When we first started doing this podcast, we all played New Star Manager on the Switch. A yeah. bit. I think it's a better console game. Like it's it's a bit deeper. It rewards planning and strategy. You have to think about like a whole team approach it benefits to have like a knowledge of, of good like team formation and player synergy and all this sort of stuff. But I think it pales in comparison to New Star Soccer because it's not as quick and it's not as immediate and it's not something that I can pick up for, for 30 seconds. You have to actually sit down and commit to it a bit more. New Star Soccer still today, like I said, there is a folder on my Android phone that I'm holding in my hand at the moment reading some of these notes that just is called Essential and it has Desert Golfing, Super Hexagon and, and New Star Soccer. And, and I think this is honestly a perfect game, but crucially a perfect mobile game. And, and I really, really love it. And I want to see what the developer goes on to do because he's done New Star Cricket in the past, which was received quite well. Yeah, have you tried that? I haven't actually because I, I have so little connection to cricket. I, I never thought I'd give it a go. He put out like an American football game recently called Retro Bowl, I think, that again for, for fans of American football, I think is, is really good. But I, I want to see kind of like something that I have more of a connection to and where it can go. And it, but even so, if it goes nowhere, then I'll just continue to play New Star Soccer every time I get a new phone. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's, you know, no no sweat off my nose. <laughs> I played a lot of New Star Soccer. Again, I shivered a little bit when it went from being a premium game to a freemium game, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I loved uh, playing New Star Manager on the Switch because it had a, you know, it was premium and I was more than happy just to then manage the balance of the game within that, and um, yeah, made me feel a bit more, a lot more comfortable. But yeah, cracking games, absolutely cracking. You played as well, Minty, didn't you? Yeah, I love this game. I've just, I've just re-downloaded it onto this. There we go. That's how they get you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the simplicity of this game, it, it, it's really, really wonderful. I remember watching our friend Steve play Football Manager sort of on his iPad and his laptop and I was just like, this is, this is an exam. This isn't a game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is just the perfect, perfect balance between like actual football gameplay and that sort of lifestyle sim. It's, it's perfect in its simplicity. It really is. I was the same with Football Manager. I really like the, the mobile versions of Football Manager because that sort of, waters it down and makes it more arcadey because you're right like you need you need to have spreadsheets for playing normal football manager it's it's absolutely mad mate of mine said like he would spend minimum half an hour usually somewhere between 45 minutes to an hour between each game and it's like <laughs> oh yeah. i haven't got yeah. oh just don't he said it's it feels like too much hard work but I think the mobile versions of Football Manager and stuff like New Star Soccer, New Star Manager gets the balance really, really right. The, the other football game that I love on mobile is, oh, what's it called? Is it called Score Hero? Oh, Score Hero is good as well. Yeah. So, so good. That's the one where you have to sort of draw a line on the screen to sort of link play together to score a goal. And they've got stuff in there like recreating classic goals from history and stuff. The problem is I would happily pay... £10, £15 even, to buy out the game. But you can't do that. Yeah. You can't do it at all. It's it's done entirely on regenerative, you know, life system. Because I would play it to death because it's so much fun. And I think it's a shame. If they released a purely premium version of it, then that would be a game that would take up a lot of my time. 
Anyway, for now, let's move on to our final game of the episode, which is Minty's Game. Clement. Oh, yeah. Can you please tell us what your 25th favourite video game of all time is, please? I'd be more than happy to. I've been looking forward to talking about this game for literally years. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, now that I'm getting to the top of my list, I'm starting to branch out from like the ones at the bottom that were just like, oh, this game is very nice. <laughs> so, actually, this game had, a, had, a, had quite a real-life effect on me. And <laughs> taking a step back to put those sentiments into words is a really lovely exercise. Uh, with that said, it's only 17 weeks until I'll talk about the only video game that's ever made me cry. Ooh. So look forward to that one. But for now, I've gone on record whenever the opportunity has presented itself to uh, talk shit about our local and national theatre scene and how it seems to have just <laughs> devolved into dystopian whataboutery and stultifying pseudo-powerful monologues. Just a, a pit of borderline nasty intention wrapped in slick words, lazy grit and cheap scenery. Government should be throwing money at theatre to give us more glorious, intense, passionate spectacles like Far Side of the Moon or Six Characters in Search of an Author, instead of these hateful ditties drunked up by some prick whose MO seems to be, I'll do my best to make anyone who can afford a ticket feel like shit. <laughs> there's, there's that fantastic speech in that episode of Doctor Who where Bill Nye is talking about Van Gogh and he says, Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy of magnificence in our world. No one has ever done it before. Perhaps no one ever will again. With that in mind, I, well, I say with that in mind, I can't really speak for the developers of this game and what their headspace was, but we've been gifted a journey with characters that endure and overcome, whose morose circumstances are swept into the sheer glory of what I think is probably the most breathtaking aesthetic I've ever seen. There's, there's so many realistic looking games out there and so often it seems like that realism is shorthand for immersion, particularly when we look at the recent glut of interactive fiction releases that deign to affect an emotional response through the unflinching portrayal of gruesome acts and choices. But to go in completely the opposite direction, to take classic art styles in games from generations past to infuse them with the wonder and beauty available to you with the advances in modern technology. That, that deft warping of all these visual styles coming together in the most stunning way is what places Octopath Traveler Ooh. at number 25 for me. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. Visually, it's, it's a masterpiece of Appian Theatre. The sheer bombast of all the visual elements coming together offers up, offers up an immersive decadence. Scorching deserts with glittering oases blurred by the depth of feel, the tranquility of wintry flames grace, snow twinkling against the candlelight, yawning through the stained glass of the cathedral in the milky night, cold dappled light coming through the canopy of foreboding forests where terrifying beasts lay. These aren't just biomes depicted, they're biomes elevated. Everything is saturated and dripping with life and beauty. I remember playing the demo playing through Therion the Thief's first chapter, oh, yeah. and it led me to a boss battle with uh, Parker from Thunderbirds-esque butler <laughs> with a rapscallion past Heathcote. And good lord, that battle had me slap down the pre-order right there and then. <laughs> if you've played 16-bit JRPGs in the past, you can expect any boss battle with like a, a humanoid figure to have that foe a little bit bigger than your characters. Just, uh, just a little pinch of a gravitas to... Uh, to give this foe an imposing presence like let's take your your first encounter with kafka in final fantasy 6 for example like it's not the overworld sprite it's quite detailed and he's there you see a greater grasp of his character his flamboyance and his arrogance and um, through just this one uh, more detailed sprite but yeah looking at octopath traveler going back to that word elevate the size and detail on boss sprites blows me away every time the sense of scale really conveys the high stakes of battling the creature that uh, stole away your mentor the apostate who killed your father the man who killed your beloved king absolutely wonderful stuff and then you realize when you get to the end of every character's story you realize how they all culminated on the gate of finis the doorway to the realm of the game's true final boss and that's that's just just a little that's just a little afterthought for everybody who plays these games to pop the super boss over their knee <laughs> like it's it's a great little epilogue for a book containing eight fantastic stories 
when Jonathan talked about this game a couple of weeks ago, he said I'd have something to say about the music. So mm. let me tell you a little bit of a story. Yes, please. If you want to be transported, uh, those of you who are listening, get on YouTube and pull up the piece called Beneath the Surface. I'll give you a couple of seconds to get it up. <laughs> uh, tick tock, tick tock. So here we go. It's January 1st, 2019. I'm stood in front of a fireplace in Fort Worth, Texas. The room has been dressed up nicely for some sort of special event. Um, people are chatting. Chairs are turned towards this fireplace. The hum of conversation is replaced by the single ethereal violin note. A mandolin tinkles, building tension and expectancy before the cello signals the arrival of the woman I'm just about to marry. Jonathan, clairvoyant, pushes a hanky into my hand. <laughs> Octopath Traveller is a transcendent game. It's gorgeous, it's brimming with beauty, but also the robust RPG gameplay that Square Enix is famed for. It's an utter masterpiece. Ooh. Well, talk about waiting to hear about a video game that made you cry. <laughs> you just made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, very, very special memory, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what I said earlier about me and Minty being bad at lots of games, <laughs> I, I, I have to retract part of that because when I play RPGs, like I've talked before, like the stumbling blocks I have around role-playing games. And and I think, Minty, you are very good at playing role-playing games, not not just because you beat them and, and that you... you you know, you get to the end and you see the credits and you go, wait, we win. But because you you take so much from them that is intended, but you have to work for. And I think you you embrace like the story and the lore and the characters and so much more about these worlds that maybe that's what I miss when I play these games. And I think that is absolutely your special talent when it comes to, to a genre. I, I think you, you definitely have something about you and the way you play these games that, that elicits these kind of like elegiac memories of them all. So there we have it, another three games. First of all, we had Super Monkey Ball, and then we had New Star Soccer. Before finally, we had Octopath Traveler. What trio? Three games that you don't often hear talked about in the same sentence, I would, I would wager. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share the podcast on social media. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash our3cents. We're on Instagram, instagram.com slash o3c podcast. You can reach out to us on those platforms. You could reach out to us individually as well. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I'm at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. Please do check out our YouTube channel as well. Search for Our Three Cents and you'll find our video content there. You can also subscribe to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash O3C podcast. If you want to tune in to watch us live stream some games coming up in the next few weeks. If you're really enjoying what we're doing, then please do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Our Three Cents. And do consider pledging a few pounds for some wonderful perks in exchange for those and we will see you next week for our 24th favorite video games of all time goodbye then and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor and now a word from our sponsor welcome to casual magic the show where we explore the fun side of magic the other I'm your host, Shivam Putt, and each week we delve into everything from casual formats to explorations of creatures and card types to interviews with designers of the game. At Casual Magic, we believe that it just isn't magic without the gathering. Come along and play! Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network.